Hello, Slate podcast listeners. Help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes and you can find it at slate.com slash survey. Just a reminder that the Dear Prudence podcast happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash prudipod. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show. Once again, and as always, I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery, also known as Dear Prudence. And with me in the studio this week is Julia Tertian, the author of the critically acclaimed cookbooks Now and Again, Feed the Resistance, and Small Victories. Her new cookbook was released this month, and it's titled Simply Julia. She's also the host of the podcast Keep Calm and Cook On. Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. And my favorite thing to do is give advice to things that I'm not involved in. So I am thrilled. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm thrilled too. And I, I love uh, that your latest book is Simply Julia. I love everything about that vibe because it's just so like, this is my stripped down cabaret tour. No more bells and whistles. It's just you and me, folks. Oh, I love just all the images that are coming to mind right now. So thank you for that. Yeah, that, that that like theatrical flourish that is like trying to bespeak simplicity uh, <laughs> is one of my favorite things. One of the things that I periodically remember I love saying is, I'll tell you this for free. Like I just love the sort of like folksy condescension of it. And I love uh-huh. the sort of like assumed air of expertise that it, it, it uh, like places on my shoulders. And so sometimes I'll just wander around the house and I'll say, Grace, I'll tell you this for free. <laughs> I think I'm going to start doing that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, just the implication that like, normally I'd charge for this, but uh-huh. you? Oh, yeah. You're getting a oh, deal. Oh, you're getting simply a deal. Daniel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are getting quite a deal. All right. If you would simply read our first question, I'd be terribly grateful to you. Uh, absolutely. Um, so the subject line is, my smart, educated daughter is slowly killing herself, is the subject line of this email. And it reads, uh, Dear Prudence, I have four children and Jess, not her real name, is slowly killing herself with food and cigarettes. She is overweight, but she did not have a weight problem until about 15 years ago. She's now in her early 50s. She smokes constantly and drinks Coke all day. She's also taking some drugs that are addicting. She has a college education and she works full time as a social worker. She is a very compassionate person and is the best daughter ever. She is also gay, and she and her partner broke up at about the same time she started gaining weight. She's been fighting addiction most of her life with drugs or alcohol. She is now pre-diabetic and has sleep apnea. I want to help her, but she usually pays no attention to what I say. Her two sisters might be able to get through to her, but I'm not sure. She is an identical twin to one of them, and her older sister is a social worker just like her. I am concerned that she will lose her job if she continues on this path. She works full-time from home now and has a couple of dogs and cats that are like her children. Please, can you help me help her? I hope we can help this person. Um, I think that there are ways in which I will not be able to help this person get everything that they would like. The, the the end of this letter 
went in kind of a number of different interesting directions. Um, it, it started to feel like not not exactly like the letter was falling apart, but like this kind of sense of just like, I don't really know what else to say. She works full time from home. She has some dogs and cats. Maybe that's a problem. I don't know. I'm not willing to commit myself to saying that's a problem, but they're like her children. That might be bad. I don't know. She's drinking a lot of Coca-Cola. She, she has sleep apnea. What, uh, here's just a list of things about my daughter. What do I do? So it, it's clear, certainly, that this letter writer is spending a lot of time worrying about almost every detail of her daughter's life. And I do think that if your goal is to manage every detail of your daughter's life and she already doesn't listen to you, at the very least, you're going to need to scale down some of your goals just because, you know, your ambition and your abilities are not lining up. I agree with that. And I also um, totally am with you on the, I'm not quite sure how much I can offer here. I am a little bit more interested in Jess, not her real name, and how things are going between Jess and her mother. Um, as I read it out loud, I was really uncomfortable reading that out loud. Um, mm -hmm. I think my um, the compassionate part of me feels like there is compassion and a lot of love here. I think maybe in the throwing all the darts at us, like this detail, this detail, there's kind of maybe like this desire to be like, wait, I really know her. Like I know her well, I'm telling you these things about her, but there's just, there's so much judgment in this, so much judgment and like needless to say around like health and weight, but like just around just everything. So I would maybe suggest to the person who wrote this to maybe take a look inward before projecting all of this outward and evaluate where the judgments around um, weight and body and using terms like killing herself, um, mm -hmm. where those things are coming from. Uh, I am right there with you. I did edit one thing out of this letter. I left the, the rest in, even though I share, I think, your objection to the phrase slowly killing herself because I thought that it spoke to the letter writer's frame of mind in a way that was really useful. Um, I, I have said this before on the show. Oftentimes, when people write into me with their feelings about somebody else's size, they like to include the exact number of pounds they think someone else is overweight. I'm never quite sure why they think that number's going to help me give them an answer. And it's always so... It's just one of those things It's just like... Where'd you pull that number from? Like, not that I want to get bogged down in the details, but just like, ah, you've assessed like to the to the pound how much yeah. this person should weigh. Um, that's a lot of mental effort. I wonder if that's helpful to either of you. So I removed that. I always remove that. I do not care how many pounds overweight somebody thinks their partner or child or friend is. And, and I agree. I think language like someone is slowly killing themselves with food part of what that rhetoric does is turn it into like, this is a matter of life and death, which means that I get to say or do or pressure you to whatever degree I want because I'm saving your life. So if I bring this up again and again and it's not actually helpful to you and it actually drives a wedge between us and it doesn't actually improve your health in any meaningful way, doesn't matter because you're killing yourself and I love you too much to let you do that. So it is in fact like necessary for your continued health and existence that I never shut up about how fat I think you are. Ooh, 
Um, yeah, it's it also puts this person in the position of, and I am the savior or martyr. Like I have the ability to be the hero in this story because I'm pointing out this problem and suggesting like a quote unquote solution. And that's just like, to me, a very dangerous thing to set up in any relationship, like especially like a parent-child relationship. I mean, for, I guess, some concrete advice, I don't know if this person's still listening to us, (laughs) but (laughs) if they are, I would just say it sounds like you have some concerns about your child and maybe just ask your child, how are you? And is there anything I could be doing to better support you to be, you know, to feel as good as you possibly can? That's what I would say. Yeah, I I think, you know, there's so many different things here on so many different scales. I think I want to start with the the thing about she's struggled with addiction for most of her life with drugs and alcohol. That's really hard. That's really rough. It's really difficult to love somebody who is also addicted to drugs and alcohol. And it's really hard. And there's often limited opportunities for intervention. And I, I think the best thing that you can do on that front, I, I think your daughter probably knows that she has struggled with addiction most of her life. And the sort of the one silver lining of that sad and difficult reality is um, you're not going to fix it overnight with one great speech. So I think the best thing you can do for either of you on that front is go to an Al-Anon meeting. Mm. Because what you need to be able to do is figure out a way you can live a useful and sane life um, with some degree of balance and proportion that does not depend solely on your daughter getting sober. Because you cannot make her get sober. And so if your well-being depends on that and she never gets sober, that means that your life is always going to be in some sort of holding pattern or some sort of contingency. Um, And that won't actually do her any good, nor will it do you any good. I think that's great advice. And I think that also like immediately decenters both of them from the story. Like, hey, this situation actually fits into this bigger context. It's not actually this personal, like this is like a mental health issue and addiction is hard and it fits in with a large group of people and we can all connect with each other and all of that. And I think that's really wise. I mean, addiction is so hard and so hard to be in any type of relationship with anyone who's struggling with it. And someone once told me, and I thought this was really smart, that if you're in a relationship with someone who is, you know, living with any type of addiction, whether it's, you know, partner, spouse, mother, father, son, daughter, whatever, you are automatically a third wheel because them and their addiction are like the primary relationship. So maybe this person writing this letter is feeling in a way left out in some way. Like there is a sort of desperation here that to me is like a little bit of like a desire for attention um, that I'm, I mean, maybe I'm reading into it too much. But yeah, I think Al-Anon is a great idea because, hey, it's not just about you. That's a great idea. And, you know, if by worrying and intervening and issuing reminders and saying things like you shouldn't drink Coke all day, if that were going to make a difference, it would have, I think. Um, It seems like on some level you've considered this a problem for 15 years and you say that your daughter doesn't pay any attention to what you say. And without, you know, I don't want to project onto the letter writer like, wow, I bet you're constantly haranguing her and driving her up the wall. But it seems clear that she doesn't trust your advice. She doesn't want to hear your advice. And so that I think is really simple. Do not try to give her advice. Do not try to tell her that smoking is bad. 
Do not try to tell her that you think she drinks too much soda. You don't have that kind of relationship. That's not going to be the thing that changes anything about her. So I, I would say start by acknowledging the relationship that you do have instead of that continued fantasy of if I just find the right combination of words, I will convince her to be concerned about the same things I'm concerned about and do the things that I want. And again, all of this can be absolutely compatible with a general desire for your daughter to be well. I I don't say this to suggest that everything that you feel about her is wholly like unnecessary fat phobia and unnecessary shaming. I understand that you are worried about her addiction, but it seems like you've also made that point. And so I think you will get farther in terms of having a sustainable relationship. Um, If you say, my daughter's a grown woman, she's been a grown woman for a long time, and she is going to make decisions about her own life that are hers to make. And if she does not want my advice I won't make our relationship any better by trying to get her sisters to give it to her. And again, to me, that says like they might be able to get through to her, but I'm not sure. Again, without saying that this means I know exactly what the letter writer's relationship with her other children is like, it's it's clear that they're not sharing a lot with you as a group. They're not like coming to you saying, mom, we want your help. Mom, we want you to intervene. Mom, we want your advice. Yeah. And that might be the pain point here for the, for the letter writer and I don't know. I, I think a lot about fat phobia and diet culture having been raised in it, as most of us were. It's, you know, it's something I tackle a lot, actually, in my cookbook, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's a healthy cookbook that's not about weight loss. Like, whoa. <laughs> um, so I don't know. This question really hit home for me or this letter. And one thing that I was thinking reading it was that I think something that diet culture produces is this sense of closeness between people when they have it in common, when they have the desire to lose weight in common, Mm -hmm. when they have the understanding between them, this mutual understanding and decision that being quote unquote fat or quote unquote overweight, you know, I don't know whose metrics anyone is using, but just the idea that fat is a bad thing. Like it's not inherently a bad thing. It's not inherently unhealthy. And I think when people come together around that shared belief, it's it just can create a sense of closeness. Like, hey, let's talk about how many Diet Cokes we drank today or whatever. And I think, I think at the end of the day, people like feeling close to other people and we don't always know how to get there. And I think that this letter writer is using some kind of broken tools trying to get there. So I would... Yeah approach it from like a, I care about you. I love you. I want to feel close to you. And I don't know how. Yeah. I think, you know, you say she's pre-diabetic and has sleep apnea. I would encourage you to let your daughter talk to her doctor or not talk to her doctor about that. Let her handle that one. Let her make her own mistakes. She's a grown woman. If she wants to make choices that you don't think are wise, she's entitled to do that. Um, It doesn't mean it's impossible to ever have a difficult conversation with a loved one, but it it sounds like you've broached this topic with her before. It does not sound like you've been letting this completely fester for decades. Like, I think she has the information about your concern. Um, And so now what you need to do is find a way to live that's not, I've got to try again. I've got to try again. I've got to try again. And I think you should think about your continued desire for more intervention with your daughter the way that you think about her relationship to Coca-Cola. Ooh, 
you know, that was like, good. That's you drinking another Coke. Yeah. Every time you want to call your daughter and say, I know how to fix your prediabetes. I know how to, you know, and like this kind of the implied theory of like, she's gay. Maybe that's got something to do with it. Maybe that's why she loves her dogs a little too much. You know, she and her partner broke up 15 years ago. And then again, like it sounds like her daughter entered like middle age. Many people put on weight in middle age or over the course of 15 years. And, but you've got this kind of theory of like that relationship ended and she started gaining weight. So one must have caused the other. And it's just like, mm-hmm. I don't know what good that theory would do you, even if it were true. I don't know how you would possibly prove it one way or the other. Um, I think you should look to solve this distress elsewhere. I think Al-Anon would be a good resource. And I think your goal with your daughter should be, how do I have conversations with her where we can both listen to each other and that are not predicated on, I need to tell you what to do. I need to tell you what to do. You have to listen to me. You're dying. I'm trying to save you. Yeah. So I I hate, I feel like it's very cliche to say like, I can't help you help her, but I can help you help yourself. But that's kind of all I got. Yeah. um, I think what you just said is great. And as a gay woman who treats her dogs like her children, (laughs) this one (laughs) is close to home. And I just want to say there's nothing wrong with that. I'll take this next letter, which is great because it's, in many ways, it's the last letter flipped. Um, there's obviously some differences, but it's it's always nice when you can kind of um, work into perspectives of a similar issue in the same episode. So the subject of this one is mom's food issues. Dear Prudence, my relationship with my mother has always been complicated. I'm the eldest of four daughters and a typical perfectionist. Since I was a child, I've been my mother's therapist for her marital issues with my father and her go-to person for advice and friendship. And I was her pride and joy in many aspects. The easiest toddler, decent athletic abilities, good grades, attractively blonde, got into a great college, solid career, etc. Getting her approval has been relatively easy, and in many ways, she was my best friend. I met my high school sweetheart at 16, and we spent eight very toxic years together. My mother couldn't stand him. During our relationship, I started gaining weight, partly due to birth control and partly because I couldn't prioritize myself and my own needs in an unhealthy relationship. My mom has a very specific picture of what health looks like. To her, it's spinning classes five times a week and only eating a cup of soup a day. She idealizes my high school body with frequent comparisons to my current size. Meanwhile, she's had an eating disorder for years, bragging about, oh, I only had an apple or a granola bar and not eating during family dinner, only for us to hear her sneaking food late at night with microwave beeps and slamming the fridge door. The hypocrisy as I've gotten older has been sickening. We've had endless fights about it. I've hung up on her distanced myself from her, screamed and cried and asked for apologies, given her the benefit of the doubt and gone months without speaking. She sobs hysterically and leaves pathetic voicemails and long text messages about how much she loves me and how sorry she is, but the apologies are never specific. I always end up comforting and forgiving her from sheer exhaustion. She spent countless hours on the phone complaining to my sisters about my weight, making comments like, I pray for her because she's fat. My family and I are very close. My dad and my sisters acknowledge that this is a projection. I hike, bike, go to the doctor regularly, and avoid junk food, and I'm generally comfortable with myself. Now my mom is sick. 
She retired four years ago and since then has had heart stents put in, recovered from colon cancer, and has now been diagnosed with breast cancer. She's due for her last surgery next month, and she's financially and physically dependent on me and my sisters. Since she got sick, it's been significantly more difficult for me to distance myself from her for the sake of my mental health. And the toll it's taken on me is infuriating. I do my best to manage my own needs while sharing the responsibilities of her care with my sisters, but I'm afraid things won't ever go back to normal. And if they do, how am I supposed to continue navigating this relationship with her without losing my mind or my sense of self? Whew. I, you know, I want to start, I want to say this really, really gently because this is just exhausting and I really feel for the letter writer. You know, letter writer, when you say, I'm afraid things won't ever go back to normal, I think you're very aware that your relationship with your mother is incredibly painful and difficult. But based on what you have described here, I don't think you two have ever had a normal relationship. You say that when you were a little child, she treated you like a therapist for her marital issues with her with your father, and you were her go-to person for advice and friendship. I don't always want to like throw out pop psychology terms, but I, I do think that the phrase parentification might be a useful one to you, letter writer. You know, it, it can feel really good as a little child if your parent is turning to you like a peer because you feel close and you feel grown up and it is also incredibly damaging and it is putting way too much weight and pressure on you and reversing the roles as they should be. So that that doesn't mean you don't love your mother or that your closeness has been fake, but um, it does not sound to me like you two have ever had a sane healthy, stable, secure relationship. It sounds like you have had an incredibly close relationship that was predicated on like hyper identification and her trying to turn you into a peer. And then later when you were no longer conforming to the model of the perfect daughter, just constant, constant manipulation and recriminations. And, you know, frankly, like the, 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 the stuff about talking to your sisters for hours about praying for you because you're fat. Like that's, I would call that a form of spiritual abuse. So to me, there's never been a normal here. There's no way things could go back to normal. Yeah. You you hit on the sentence that struck me the most um, that I was sort of putting my like mental highlighter on that, that idea of I'm afraid things won't ever go back to normal. That really stood out to me as well. And Things weren't normal here. <laughs> you know, also what is normal? I get that. But also everything you just pointed out, I just so agree with. And there is so much pain here. And why would that even be something you might want to return to, even if it's really familiar, right? So mm-hmm. I think that idea of, okay, maybe, it, you know, if the question is how do you navigate this relationship without losing your sense of self, I think really holding on to that sense of self, it sounds like you've managed to build despite all of these obstacles. Just hold on to that, first of all. Mm -hmm. And in terms of navigating it, just like do not navigate trying to go backwards because I don't think, it just doesn't sound to me that that is somewhere you want to go. So I think just changing the direction of the car a little bit might be helpful. And I also just... I don't know. I read this and I hear you read it out loud, especially coming after the last letter. I think that there is, 
there's a mother in, you know, that this letter writer is referring to who's trying to get through to her in a way she can't get through. And then the letter writer is trying to get through to her mother and is not getting through. And it sounds like they're actually kind of doing the same exact thing. And they're both really frustrated because they're not getting the result they want. And it makes sense because I think the letter writer saw this behavior modeled. You know, this is what she knows. This is what is, quote unquote, normal or familiar. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just this. This isn't working. (laughs) Like someone has to change it. And, you know, why not just have it be you? And I think changing the way they communicate would be pretty major here. Yeah, I I think I want to start from a place of um, what you might call acceptance or what you might call pessimism you know, choose, <laughs> choose your term as you like. Um, I think letter writer, what you think of as normal is an absence of recrimination about your, uh, your size. Um, and I can understand why that would feel normal by comparison because it was much less uh, hostile or full of pressure. But again, the normal was wildly inappropriate, a complete failure to parent and deeply damaging. So it was maybe easier in some ways to contend with because you got a lot more praise and affirmation for your thinness, for your athleticism, for your good looks, but it was not normal. Um, So I totally understand why you want less pressure, but you know, you say, you talk about that toxic relationship with your high school sweetheart and you say you couldn't prioritize yourself and your own needs in an unhealthy relationship. I mean, that's you and your mom. You, 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 you've struggled to prioritize yourself and your own needs in an unhealthy relationship with your mom. And that, predates that toxic relationship with your high school sweetheart. And that I I don't say that to say like she caused that bad relationship with him or if you can just think of her as the first problem, you'll be able to fix all of these problems. I, I, I don't. I just mean, I think you should think of this in terms of my mom and I have a toxic relationship. We always have. And Here's the the acceptance slash pessimism part. I think you should assume that your mother is never going to be able to adequately apologize or change her behavior. And so whatever, again, self-prioritizing, whatever health, sanity, freedom, risk management is going to look like for you needs to rest upon mom's not going to get better. And I don't mean that she, she, she may recover from this cancer. I don't know how much longer your mother will live. It may be quite a long time, um, but... The only way that I think you will be able to find a sustainable way to offer some form of care is if you let go of the fantasy that things are going to go back to the way they used to be and that it's going to be good. Um, it, it will help to think of it in terms of she's always going to do this shit. So I need to think of where do I need to draw the line even when she's sick, even when she has needs? When do I need to delegate to a sibling? When do I need to end a conversation even if I feel bad because she has cancer? Yeah. Yeah. It's hard, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is hard. This is a painful one. It is. So I, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I sure would recommend therapy. I don't know if you have the time or the money for it right now, but if you do, absolutely go. And I think I, I would especially seek out a therapist who is competent in talking about ways that like eating disorders and the loathing of fatness um, damages relationships and damages human connection. I, that's the thing that gets me here is like this this kind of shit, this kind of shit that often masquerades as this is health is just like this woman's eating disorder and her 
inability not to project her eating disorder onto her children has, among other things, contributed to a wildly painful relationship. Yeah. And there's nothing healthy about it. There's nothing helpful about it. There's nothing good about it. Exactly. And it's, I mean, that is so sad. And it's, I can only imagine this letter writer's mother, I can only imagine the mother's relationship with herself, you know, to live with an eating disorder for that long is painful. And to project it unsuccessfully and not have that, like, alliance is painful. And and she's going through cancer and, uh, you know, all these things. And it's like, there's so much pain. So everyone here is in pain. Like, no one, I'm not reading any happy story here. Yeah. So I think just acknowledging that between each other, like, oh, we're both really in pain here for different reasons. But we can sit in this place together. Like, that's something they can do. I don't know that they want to do that. but. Yeah, this one is tough. Yeah, I I think, you know, again, therapy, distance, cutting down on these conversations as much as you can, look for ways to minimize fallout rather than try to like get things great. Um, And and the last thing I'll say, sorry to be like on the estrangement beat today. Um, I, I don't say any of this letter writer to be like, you should hate your family. You should, you know, tell them all to jump off a cliff. But you say your family and you are very close. And you say that your dad and your sisters all acknowledge that your mom is projecting on you. But it sounds like when your mom calls your sisters to complain for hours about how she's praying to the Lord God to intervene in the size of your body, they don't say, shut the hell up. They don't say, what an awful thing to say. They don't stop her. And it sounds like when your mother was treating you like a girlfriend slash therapist slash confidant when you were a child that your dad as the other parent and the other adult in the room stepped in and said, that's not an okay way to treat our kid. So I see a lot of closeness here. I see a lot of closeness that rests upon not acknowledging harm and reality or only acknowledging it in a way that allows it to continue. That's like, yeah, it's bad, but what are you going to do? Let's keep doing this sort of missing stare thing. I Sorry, I know that that language usually has more to, to refer to, to predatory behavior, but I, I think there has been a, a type of predatory behavior yeah. here. And, and it seems like and, the family... negligence. Yeah, a really bad combination of the two. And the family, I think, has developed this closeness partly to prevent anyone ever really saying, this is so unhealthy. This is so fucked up. We should not have to live like this. So... That doesn't mean you have to hate them. That doesn't mean you have to like retroactively reject all the closeness. But I think you should consider the ways that closeness functions as a tool to continue and enable this kind of harm and this kind of abuse to prevent you from really setting normal, humane, healthy boundaries. I could not agree more. I think there has to be like collective boundary setting here big time. And I feel like you really hit the nail on the head with like the other members of this family and the enabling that's happening, whether it's conscious or not. You know, I understand the idea of just like keeping a family member or whoever on the phone for a long time and maybe put it on speaker and you're also making dinner and just not really listening and just let them vent. But it's also the repercussions of that, you know, are are loud. So yeah, you pay for it in a lot of other respects. So, you know, again, that's, I know pessimistic. I think whatever you do next needs to start with if anyone in my family ever eventually joins me in setting more reasonable boundaries, that will be a delightful surprise. I can't expect it, 
They're not going to like it when I set these new boundaries. They're not going to like it when I pull away. They're not going to like it when I don't go along with things that I used to go along with in the past. So I need to figure out ways to get the kind of support I need elsewhere because they will not be a source of support uh, and solidarity here. And that's hard, but... I just want to echo your suggestion for therapy and especially a therapist who has experience either, you know, supporting people who have an eating disorder or disordered eating or just an understanding of that and who are coming from like a non-fat phobic perspective because that can be reinforced by a lot of therapists. And I think there's a lot of great resources out there for like body justice therapists and stuff like that. And I think being very particular about, you know, whose who's counsel you're going towards is really important. And I say that from a personal place because I've dealt with a lot of this stuff before and have worked with therapists who have actually, I think, done a little bit more damage until I found the right people. And it's made such a big difference. So I'm saying that from like a very personal place. Like it makes a big difference to work with someone who is invested in like dismantling just diet culture. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. You, you don't go need, for that. I, you don't need, I'm picturing like that, that Lucille Bluth line from Arrested Development where she just says, well, sometimes a diet is the best defense against <laughs> criticism. You don't need anyone who brings that energy to the therapeutic relationship. Screen for that. Yeah. No Lucille. <laughs> no Lucille's. Oh man. Oh man. I'm going to move on to a much easier question to adjudicate, I think, or at least more straightforward. The subject is not dear. Dear Prudence, I'm a woman in my mid-60s. I'm active, bright, and engage well with people. I'm often told that I'm very youthful looking. Nevertheless, I have gray hair and I'm obviously not in my 30s. I'm beyond frustrated when I'm addressed as dear or some other equivalent in a professional setting. Sometimes this is by young women, sometimes young men. I know full well that they aren't addressing men my age as dear. On the one hand, I'd like to educate people that this is an unwelcome way to address an older person. On the other hand, I sometimes just want to yell that they're being patronizing and sexist, and they've just lost my business. I'd like to be polite, but definitely get the message across that this is unacceptable. It's not endearing or welcome. Not endearing. I like that. <laughs> that was cute. I, I think this is totally a legitimate complaint. I think it's absolutely fine to address. My only question here is, she says that I want to tell them that they've just lost my business. And so I'm wondering, are these clients that you are meeting with uh, because you will be potentially hiring them? Or are you talking about like you're going into a store, you're going into a restaurant? Again, not because you're not allowed to object in any of those settings, but if a barista is calling you dear, um, if this is like a personal private purchase you are making, I, I think you're not meeting as two professional colleagues. At that point, I think you would just need to say, oh, please don't call me that. Um, and that would be the extent of the intervention that I would recommend. If this is, we are meeting in a in an, you know a boardroom, we're having a Zoom call to discuss a project we're taking on, then you can be a little bit more firm about, please don't call me dear. You know, this is a professional relationship and you can call me by my name. Yeah, I, I'm with you 100%. And I also think it depends on the context. And yeah, maybe you choose your battle. Like the barista is, I think, a really good example. 
But I think that this might be a place where, like, humor could come in. So if someone is calling her dear, she can just go, you know, something like, sure thing, sweetie pie, or something. Like, maybe a little kind of sassy response and just do it right back to them to show them how, like, inappropriate this is. I think that could work. But, you know, that's, that's like, cute. thinking on your feet and also maybe passive aggressive and not so direct. I know those aren't great things, but I feel like this is a situation where that could work and could just, like you know, just address it immediately and kind of in a funny way and just point it out. And I don't know. I feel like I just want to see this person do that. I do find that idea tempting, but I do worry that there might be people who think, oh, this is so cute. We've both got nicknames now. <laughs> and then you're in the position where they want you to call them Sweet Pea. And you're like, oh. oh, no, no, no. I was annoyed. <laughs> that is a very good point. Yeah, this could backfire and you could just be known as like Honey Button forever. So. <laughs> Yeah, but it's absolutely fine to not like it. You are right. It is patronizing and sexist. They might also think that it's cute, but you do not have to, uh, you know, accept those terms. Uh, The fact that they may think they're being, you know, well-intended is not something you have to worry about. So, you know, as long as you don't yell right off the bat, because, you know, kind of like in the last letter, you know, Jane was saying, a lot of people are doing this. You've just done it the most recently. It's not that you're responsible for all those other people, but it, you're the latest. You don't want to react to one person with the strength of the last 10 people who did it. That's very wise. I, but it, like again, I get it. It sucks because you do have to experience it every time. But if you react cumulatively, then other people will treat you as if you have just done something wildly inappropriate. So I I get that there's more of a burden on you to be cheerful or polite when you have to deal with it constantly. And that sucks. I wish I had a better strategy. No, it's sort of like the definition of a microaggression. And it's like, you know, a thousand cuts and it sucks. Like this sucks. And it's ageist and patronizing. And it, it really is all those things. And it sucks that it's on her to have to counter it, you know, that just, that sucks. Yeah. I'm sorry that you have to deal with this. I hope anyone listening who has been doing this, especially at work stops. Um, and just absolutely just as soon as they do it once, interrupt them and say, please don't call me dear. My name is whatever your name is. You don't have to apologize for that. You don't have to bend over backwards to make them feel better afterwards. Cultivate silence after you have said, please don't call me that. So that if they like sputter, they can manage their own discomfort. That's totally. not your problem. I totally agree. I think it can be really quick and direct and to the point. Absolutely. Go for it. Say it every time. That's it. That's all I got on that one. Okay, dear. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> all right. This last one. Who's it's your turn? It's my turn. Yeah. I love I love getting letters that are just like, ah, I have a relative I feel nothing but contempt for. I've been doing a bunch of stuff because they asked me to. Yeah. But I just fucking hate them and their values. And what should I do? It's just I like, think this is this is a good one to end on. Something. Subject is influencer sister. Dear Prudence, a few months ago, my sister decided that she wanted to launch a YouTube career, hoping to become an influencer who gives life advice to others. She has no formal training and is billing herself as something like a life coach. She has an uncommon physical ailment and got surgery 10 years ago, but still deals with chronic pain. She wants her brand to be about helping others who struggle with chronic pain too. Because I work in communications, she leaned heavily on me at the start, and I felt obligated. I spent hours on FaceTime with her developing ideas, which I later drafted for her. 
I wasn't wild about her idea, but I tried to support it. But the content she started posting has been embarrassing. Her boyfriend supports her financially because he inherited a family business. But before COVID, she was working and hoped to go back to school to get her degree. Her boyfriend has severe anxiety and has not visited his business since the pandemic started, and they've taken a financial hit as a result. His fear of driving has also escalated, and he's also unable to be alone in the house. This worries me, especially as it might affect my sister's financial security. No one discusses his anxiety openly, and I feel the family dances around it. Despite this, my sister projects herself as a source for others to draw life advice from. When she started up her YouTube and Instagram accounts, I started pulling away a bit. I was worried that if I didn't, she'd keep asking me to help her write her videos and develop her strategy. Eventually, she called me out for being distant, and I told her I admired her ambition but was worried about her financial security. She was defensive, and we haven't spoken one-on-one since before Thanksgiving. What I didn't say was that I think it's problematic for her to give advice when she's not professionally qualified. I have a strong disdain for influencer culture, and it makes me sad to see her so unabashedly seek attention this way. My mother feels the same way as I do, but she's committed to supporting my sister. My sister's tried to get my mom to try internet fame. I only know this because my mom asked me to delete an Instagram account my sister had made for her. She was embarrassed when family members followed the account and was afraid to tell my sister to delete the page. My mom says I was too honest with my sister, and it's up to me to apologize and fix things. I think that I have nothing in common anymore with my sister. This always heavily on me, not because I miss her or want to hang out, but because I feel guilty and worried that my distance is causing long-term damage. I will always love her. I just don't see us being close like we used to be unless our lives become similar again. I don't understand why she needs so much attention from the internet. And that makes me sick that her end game is to make money from it. Am I wrong? What would you do? I can't help but feel slightly implicated, letter writer. I think you must know that I don't have formal training uh, when it comes to giving advice, but that's one of my main jobs. So I'll just start with a big caveat, which is that you have asked a non-professional advice columnist to advise you. And I just really want to stress, most of my job requires getting attention from the internet and I have no professional credentials of which to speak. So feel very free to disagree with me on that basis. Do you have a sister? <laughs> I'm just wondering. Uh, I, is this about you? I am entirely no. estranged from my family of origin. We do not talk at all. Sorry to bring that <laughs> Not at all. I just mean, you know, if you're, if you're hoping to, to get me to have a solution for maintaining a relationship with your sister, boy, if I knew how to do that, I would have, mm. I would have kept my sister in my life. Mm. But I couldn't. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah, I definitely noticed kind of some similarities here and was wondering how this landed with you, but also, you know, a lot of things that I I don't. For whatever it's worth, we did not become estranged because either of us was trying to become an influencer. I really love the idea of my sister has tried to get my mom to try internet fame. You just pick it off a tree, you know? You decide (laughs) I want to become internet famous, and then you start an account and you say, fame and attention, please. Did you see the movie Eighth Grade? I did not see the movie Eighth Grade. There was a movie called Eighth Grade that came out, I don't know, a couple years ago. And it's basically about this girl who's in the eighth grade who is incredibly... um, 
insecure and self-conscious and the things most people in eighth grade, if not in life in general, feel. And she starts a YouTube channel that's about like giving advice about how to be like confident. And that's kind of like the crux of the movie. So this made me kind of think of that and just made me feel kind of sad all around. And I don't know. I don't, I don't see how this letter writer sister's YouTube career is hurting this letter writer in any way. I think like let her make her YouTube videos. Like I don't think they're having an impact on her day-to-day life, but I think she can draw a boundary and maybe not offer her professional services if she's going to then resent that in some way. Um, I don't know. That was one thought I had. Yeah. I mean, I'm just really stuck on this trying internet fame thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this one this one felt very like Luke 424 to me. Like no one is a prophet in his hometown, which is just like, I can't believe my fucking sister's giving advice. Like I have so many opinions about the way she lives her life. Um, yeah. So yeah. I don't want to try to adjudicate whether or not your sister has ever given good advice. You say that you have found the things that she writes embarrassing. You know, maybe they are. Um I wouldn't I wouldn't try to spend too much time trying to convince her to be embarrassed by it but it's certainly fine and appropriate that you eventually wanted to stop offering her your free professional consulting services that's absolutely reasonable the fact that your mom it sounds like is real nervous about making your sister upset and you know who knows what other dynamics are going on there but it seems like your mother really really wants to protect your sister's feelings and self-image. Um, I think you can respectfully decline to take your mom's advice here. Your mom says she thinks you should apologize and make up. You know, if anything, if you did want to try for a sort of like reproachment, I think the thing to say would be something like, I miss talking. Um, I'm sorry for how I handled this. Um, I wish that I had set a boundary sooner. I don't want to be your like free co-founder and do all that work for you. I was happy to have some conversations with you about basic outlining stuff, but I I took on too much. I took on more than I was comfortable with. I should have said no sooner. And instead of being clear with you, I just started pulling away. And that's really different than I'm sorry for not doing this work with you. That's just, I should have been clearer sooner and still holding firm to you know, I I don't want to do all this work for you for free, which is super reasonable. Even if she gets mad about that, it is okay when somebody is mad at you for a bad reason. You can just let them be mad. Yeah, the whole part about that they used to be close and when they said, I think I have nothing in common anymore with my sister, this weighs heavily on me, not because I miss her or want to hang out, but because I feel guilty and worried my distance is causing long-term damage. I'll always love her, you know. I don't know. I feel like you miss your sister and that's okay. And, but I think you also don't like what she's doing and that's also okay. And both those things can be true at the same time. I also don't understand all this whole sidebar about the boyfriend and the anxiety. Like that has nothing to do with this. Is that just trying to say like our family doesn't talk about things directly? Is that why that's in there? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I think you clearly have some opinions about him and how he may or may not be handling his anxiety. I'll just say whatever their relationship may or may not look like on the inside, it's fine if your sister and her boyfriend don't choose to discuss how they handle his anxiety with you. That's fine. You don't have to like it, 
but it's totally appropriate for them to decline to share details with you. You may privately think they're not handling it well. They are entitled to handle that badly if they want to, and they are entitled to handle it how they want. He, I don't think you should try to intervene further there. I think you should uh, try to cultivate neutrality as often as possible when you think about him um, and just say, like, he's clearly going through a lot. Uh, you know, he's not my partner. I don't have to drive him places. Um, mm-hmm. That's not on me. If it ever affects me, like if somebody ever asks me to do something on his behalf that I don't want to do, I could set a boundary there. But beyond that, they're not going to welcome it if I come in and say, like, here's how he should handle his anxiety. That's just yeah, not your, what's the expression? Not your clowns, not your rodeo. Oh, yeah, not your circus. Yeah, clowns. Well, not there your are rodeo clown, clowns, not your I circus. guess. Yeah, not your clowns, not your circus. Not your first rodeo. I don't know. Some sort of folksy expression. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, and I think to your mom, say, you know, mom, I, I love you, but if your strategy to this is to ask me to like quietly delete things that you don't want to say no to my, my sister about, I, I'm not going to do that for you anymore. If you want me to apologize to her, I, you know, I, I, I hear you. I disagree. I'm not going to. It is okay to have a little conflict with your mom, even though she sounds pretty conflict diverse. But beyond that, you know, I, I think you can definitely say to your sister, I'm sorry for how I handled it, but I'm not sorry for drawing a limit um, and see where that gets you. But do not then go further and try to say, I think you give bad advice or I think this, like, I just don't think she's going to, yeah, it's going to go well. Don't like don't start like trolling her YouTube account. Yeah. And you know, gosh, beyond that, like you say, I feel guilty makes sense, but you're also like, I actually don't really miss her or want to hang out. So, you know, you say you worry your distance is causing long-term damage. I agree, but I also don't see a better option here because you don't actually want to be closer. You just don't want the fallout and you don't Mm. actually share her kind of values or commitments, and it doesn't seem like you're able to see your way to some sort of like live and let live policy on that front. So I think you got to kind of accept our relationship is damaged. I don't really like or respect her. I can treat her with respect to the best of my ability, but we're probably not going to become as close as we used to, and I just need to find ways to live with that. Yeah, maybe she should tune into her YouTube channel and get some advice. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm, I just feel very self-conscious in all of this where I'm just like, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, well, I mean, it's very inter- There's like a whole meta thing going on here that this letter writer is writing this letter and is seeking advice about how to deal with her sister who offers advice. You know, people don't have to take the sister's advice. Just like, you know, people can choose whether or not to listen to this program, right? Like, we're not forcing anyone but it's obviously the best so why would you not listen um yeah i mean lots of projection if you had said like she gives like medical advice she's not qualified to give that i believe would harm people different yeah that would be really different i would have different advice for you then if you just find it embarrassing i would just say don't worry about it and i know that feels so hard because again one of the themes of the letters today is like if a relative of mine does something that i think is embarrassing or not the best thing they could be doing with their lives, I've got to fucking intervene. And there's just limits to how much you can intervene in other adults' life about non-life-threatening or non-value-threatening like value threatening, uh, 
issues. Yeah, I do. There's a part of me that's like, did the same person write all the letters? Like they're, you know, they're not the same, but there definitely is that theme. That's totally accurate. Yeah. Yeah. So I I just think it is very hard to accept the interiority of others. It's really hard to accept the fact that other people are entitled to make their own decisions about their relationships, how they handle their partner's anxiety, how they handle their money, what kind of careers they want to have. Certainly it can affect sometimes how you feel about somebody, but there's just a real limit to how much you can tell a sibling what kind of career you think that they ought to have. doesn't mean you can't ever have a conversation about goals or values, but you do have to really respect the fact that they may disagree with you. And once you've had that conversation once, you kind of have to let it go. Yeah. But again, I'm just a non-qualified, non-professional who doesn't even talk to his sister. So, (laughs) you know, that's where I'm coming from. That's the kind of advice you're getting right now. Amazing. Amazing. What a, what a day. I, I kind of want to just like eat something delicious that I don't need to eat now. What are you craving? Frankly, like a a Coca-Cola. Right. Yeah. Yeah. With like pebble ice, you know, like from (gasps) like. Yeah. Oh, I miss pebble ice. Yeah. That sounds so good right now. They should sell. That sounds great. Shaved ice that's pebbled. That would be great. I don't know if you could make that happen (laughs) with your your food influencing empire. (laughs) Just Julia. Um. Yeah, I will work on it. I guess we could just go through like a drive-thru, right? And just get like a fountain soda. That might be the easiest way. But a lot of fast food places do the, you know, little square ice. So you'd have to kind of yeah. vet in advance. Like you could call them and be like, what kind of ice is in your ice machine? <laughs> Which feels like working at a fast food restaurant in these times is already difficult. I don't really want to bother I was them. literally just about to say, can you imagine standing in whichever, you know, fast food restaurant and you get that call from like one of us jerks no they don't (laughs) need that excuse me they don't need that energy i'll just chop up some ice at home or something (laughs) when i was a when i was a teenager growing up in the very religious midwest my parents subscribed us to brio magazine which was a magazine for teen girls run by focus on the family and uh there was an advice columnist Susie schellenberger who would always get questions from teens that would be like my sister owns a Fiona Apple CD and there are curse words in it. What should I do? Or like, I have a boyfriend and he wants to make out. What should I do? And she would almost always begin them with this like, oh, letter writer, I just wish that you and I could sit down somewhere together and have a Coke and I could just like make you feel better. Like that was always her thing. Like such that in retrospect, I wonder like, was that product placement? Was Coke sponsoring Focus on the mm. Family's Teen Lifestyle magazine? And now I got to go do some digging into this Susie Schellenberger and see what her deal is with Coke. What a name. It was Susie Schellenberger. I haven't thought about that magazine in quite some time, but I read it avidly, avidly every time. Schellenberger's sounds like a fast food restaurant. Maybe. Right? Like a local. Yeah. Maybe. I I bet she would have pebble ice in her restaurant. (laughs) Oh, wow. She created Brio and edited it the whole time. Oh. And then. Uh, when Brio folded, she created Susie magazine. Yes, she did. She's written 40 books. Oh my gosh. My goodness, what a prolific woman. She was featured as a teen expert on the Montel Williams show. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Maybe not something you put in your bio. I don't know. <laughs> I am fast. I'm going to go down this rabbit hole for the rest of the afternoon. That's what I'm going to be up to for the rest oh of the day. Gosh. Julia, Amazing. thank you so, so much for being on the show. You are a delight. 
this was really just interesting and um, fun. And I just, yeah, I appreciate you having me. This was totally unlike any other podcast interview I have done recently. So thank you for that, for mixing it up and making it really fun. Absolutely. And if anybody listening subscribes to Suzy Magazine, uh, <laughs> please write in and let me know what's going on there. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Your furnace broke. You called him crying, asking him to solve this problem for you. And he like, it sounds like kind of walked you through it, found you another guy. Like, I honestly didn't think that that was asking him for help. What? Come on. Of course, you called the man sobbing and asked him to fix your problem. No, he didn't come over and fix the furnace yourself, but like by any definition, you asked him for help. Yeah, I think what a practical thing here is this person that James referred her to, his his buddy. Um, I would just save Buddy's number in her phone and just call Buddy next time. Skip James. Make it easier. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.